Let's open in prayer this morning as we get into this lesson. This one, I'm so excited. This is the one I've been waiting and waiting to do with you, even though this is only the second lesson. But I really, really love this lesson. This is a lot of fun for me because of the truth that's here. But let's open in a word of prayer and we'll get started, okay? Lord, we just open up our hearts and minds to you this morning and we just ask that your spirit would just bless us and keep us safe throughout this day. But Lord, as we open up your word and examine things in it, help me to explain well that your word does not change. Though the world is today got many critics going around saying that it does, Lord, help us to see the truth. May your Holy Spirit teach us as we go through this. Very, very important lesson today. In Jesus' name, amen. Back when I taught in school, I would often use half a period on a Friday to just sit and talk with students. And we didn't have a set topic on this type of thing. We just would sit and talk. And it was my way of trying to get to know the kids and to me to listen to the kids. And I would answer all sorts of questions. Well, this one Friday, there was a gal sitting in my classroom, and we were on the lecture side of my classroom. It's a carpeted side. And I had my big 12-foot-long teacher's desk there. And on my desk, I always had a Bible. Um, it was a King James, New King James Version sitting on, on my desk. And the student said during this discussion time, she pointed to my Bible, and she says, you know, Mr. Lane, that your Bible up there um, has been compromised. You don't really believe everything in it, do you? I said, what do you mean it's been compromised? Um, I said, no, enlighten me. Tell me what's going on. And she said that it had been altered through the ages and made to fit into a form of Christianity that was different than what God actually intended. That our Bible has been compromised. There are many sections in it that were added after the time of Constantine in the Roman Empire before the Middle Ages. And I was like, really? Hmm. Now, the, the version, like I said, I had sitting at my desk was a New King James Version, which is practically a word-for-word translation. Uh, its 130 translators tried to construct a Bible that was true to faithfulness, the faithfulness of the original Greek, Ar- uh, Aramaic, and Hebrew texts, including, they used, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Today, most Bible scholars accept it as one of the most accurate Bibles in print, but... This student insisted that it had been compromised by Christians through the ages who changed the view of Christianity to meet their, as she put it, warped new view of Christianity. Is it true? Is our Bible compromised like that? Well, actually, there's a lot of people who believe so. Uh, there's a lot of people today, just in the last, oh, two decades, there have been a, a flock of people stating this. And one reason a lot of people have gone to this uh, idea is because what a special book, a special book came out and written by a man named Dan Brown, who wrote The Da Vinci Code. Now, in this, this book, um, he talks about how scripture was compromised and the doctrine and stuff was changed by Constantine um, in the uh, early 4th century A.D., uh, even though the book is, do you see this written on here? Uh, if you look at the cover, as I show you the cover of the book, you'll notice it says something. There's a little phrase underneath there. It says, a novel. That tells us 
Like, what is this book? Exactly. It's fiction. You're right. And uh, this is a fiction book. If you go to Barnes & Noble or if you go to Amazon or, or some big bookstore or something like this, and you're going to look for this book, if you go to the library, where do you think you have to go? And I'll tell you, it's not the nonfiction section. You're going to be going into where the fiction is because this is historical fiction. It's history, but it is fictional. And it's sad that there are many people I know, many Christians in particular, so-called Christians that can quote sections out of this book. My daughter, uh, Heather, a few years back, uh, she sold the car. Uh, she had a pickup truck. We sold it. She sold it, and I drove with her to drop it off at this guy's house. And as I got there, and the guy came out and was giving me, or actually giving Heather the check um, and getting the title of her truck, um, he got talking to me and said, oh, you work at Fort Wilderness. Wow, that's a Christian camp, right? And he go, I go, yeah. And he says, well, I'm a Christian too. And I go, yeah. He says, oh, yeah. I said, um, I don't know. We were just making small talk. I said, well, what's your favorite book of the Bible and, and stuff? And uh, he, he said, I just like them all and, and things. But he started, he says, one of my favorite Bible stories is how um, Jesus and Mary Magdalene, um, how he kissed her. And, um, you know, eventually, they, you know, they go off together. They get married and... And I'm standing there listening to this, and I'm like, what gospel is he reading? <laughs> and that they ended up in France and had kids, and I'm like, whoa. Um, yeah. I've been amazed at how many people can quote parts of Dan Brown's book. They can't quote the Bible very accurately. So uh, th there's another one, though. Let me give you another example of um, this type of thing taking place in the world today. Uh, not long ago, an organization was started by 60 or so quote-unquote Bible scholars, and it was called the Jesus Seminar. Now, doesn't the name Jesus Seminar sound like something you want to be involved in? Well, uh, it was started by uh, Robert Funk, who is now deceased, and basically he treats the Gospels as fallible historical artifacts that contain both authentic and inauthentic material. If you look here, here's the, as I show you the cover of their book, the five um, the five Gospels, and in this he's talking about how um, this book has become, the, our four Gospels have become so uh, messed up, as he puts it in the Jesus Seminar, that a lot of things that we see in here, if you have a, like a red print Bible, you know, where they have the red text for what Jesus says, like in the four Gospels, he says all oh, that is is not correct. And so the Jesus Seminar got this crazy idea um, in and the thing is, they, they voted. They got together and they voted on every single sentence that Jesus said in the four Gospels. And they voted it with beads of all things. Yes, different colored beads. There was like a black bead, a white bead, a gray bead, no, um, uh, a red bead. And they would uh, read a sentence and then they would vote. And the voting went like this. Each bead represented a statement, like Jesus didn't ever say anything like that. That would be like one color. Another one would be Jesus sort of said something like that, but this isn't what he said, which would be another color. Then there'd be one like, well, Jesus might have broached this topic, but he didn't say anything like this. Uh, and then the, the fourth one that the bead represented would be that this, uh, Jesus never said anything like it at all. Um, so they had these different colors. Okay, if Jesus said it, it would be one color. If Jesus said nothing like it, it would be a different color, etc. And what they did is they basically just sat there, these 60 people sat there and read each verse in the Bible, and then they would hold up a bead. 
And then it was the majority rule, and that's what they said. And they have chopped things out of the scriptures so much that there's very little in our in the four gospels that we have in our Bibles that Jesus actually said according to them. And what scientific basis did they have on this? Their gut feeling. Um, that's it. There was no real scientific basis. But people have really jumped on this. And what's fascinating to me is like uh, CNN, ABC, CBS, um, NB, uh, all these different news uh, uh, broadcasting networks, what they do at like at Christmas time and Easter time, they always hold these little specials, you know, like at Christmas, was Jesus really born in Bethlehem? Or did Jesus really live in Nazareth? Or at Easter time they might have, uh, did Jesus really die on the cross? Or did Jesus really rise from the dead? And the thing is, they run some really nice sounding um, specials uh, during these seasons. But the problem is, if you ever watch these things, and I have quite a few of them on the tape, uh, VHS tape here. Yeah, VHS. I'm old. Um, there are some VHS tapes behind the screen here in, in the lab that has uh, a lot of these things on here. And what's fascinating to me is that the Bible experts, quote-unquote Bible experts, that these uh, broadcast companies use are not people like Charles Swindoll or John MacArthur or Dr. David Jeremiah. It's not people like that. It's people like John uh, Dominique Croissant, who is the leader now, uh, one of the primary leaders of the Jesus Seminar, because Robert Funk has died. But let me just give you a quote right from um, John Dominique Croissant. Now, he is a, a former priest, but um, he says that the Bible has been totally compromised. Uh, uh, the New Testament Gospels in particular, Jesus never said hardly any of this stuff. But let me just quote him um, as he was talking one time. Quote, my point, once again, is not that those ancient people told literal stories and were now smart enough to take them symbolically, but that they told them symbolically and we are now dumb enough to take them literally, unquote. He's talking about the Bible stories, parables, and other things that Jesus said. And he's basically calling us dumb if you think really, if you really believe Jesus said those, you're really dumb. But he's one of the Bible experts. He's on practically every single one of these specials. A Bible expert. The guy's not even a Christian. <laughs> Bible expert. Or here's another one. Probably today, the most acclaimed New Testament scholar, according to um, great courses and other, um, other types of uh, media, is a guy by the name of Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman did go to Moody. Uh, he's a New Testament scholar at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He's made a career, though, uh, with best-selling books like, like this one here, Misquoting Jesus, the story behind who changed the Bible and why. Or here's another bestseller, The Orthodox Corruption of Scripture. What affects the early Christological um, commentaries uh, as it's talking about with the New Testament, how, how Scripture has been totally corrupted in a, um, in a deliberate form is what he's talking about here. And he's got another one. Um, I have a copy sitting on my desk over there, um, misquoting, or I'm sorry, the Lost Gospels. The Lost Gospels. These are Gospels that did not make it into the New Testament. And um, yeah, right. Now, he's a frequently sought-after speaker and is featured on many TV specials. He's often called an expert of the New Testament. Frequently, you'll see him on, on programs, and they always put him down, expert of the New Testament. Many universities consider him the expert, the top expert on the New Testament. And he, too, frequently teaches that the Bible, used by evangelicals like the New King James, New American Standard, the English Standard, etc., are not accurate. 
Uh, let me give you a quote from him also, from Bart Ehrman. He says, quote, Can historians prove that Jesus was raised from the dead? I always argued that. No, no one can prove it. Are the gospel accounts of Jesus reliable? No, not completely. Does the Bible provide an adequate answer to why there is suffering? No, not really, unquote. Yeah, this guy's a Bible expert. Mm -hmm. So how accurate is our Bible? Has the Word of God been changed? I mean, a lot of people say it has. Or it's an old book. It's been carried by so many traditions of oral tradition being handed down. There's got to be a lot of errors in it. Well, if it is, we have to ask this question. And this is a valid question. Is it inaccurate and foolhardy to place our trust and faith in the Word of God? Because if it has been compromised, we've got to be a bunch of idiots. Or as John Dominic Croissant says, we're dumb. So, to answer these questions, I first of all called up the Evangelical Christian Publishers Association. Now, this was back in April when I was writing this. And I asked them, what are the five best-selling versions of the Bible? In order, well, the number one version, they said, this is in April of 2017, the number one version is the New International Version, the NIV. The second best-selling translation is the New Living Translation, the NLT. Then there's the King James Version, the KGV, which is the, the, the or KJV, KGB, that's Russian, uh, KJV, which is the uh, old Shakespearean, oh, whether thou goest type language. Um, then there's the New King James, like the one I used to have on my desk, and today, this one sort of shocked me, the English Standard Version has moved considerably. The last time I checked years ago, it was far down on the list. Now it's the fifth best-selling translation. And it's the one that you're sitting right now, sitting on my desk. And it's the one if you've been watching on our, the presentation yesterday and as we go through today. It's the most used uh, Bible I use for speaking to groups and stuff because, well, I'll explain why I, I love it so much. But... Here's a very good question. Now, this question was actually asked of me back, oh, about two decades ago by a friend of mine on a marine biology trip, a colleague I worked with. And he says, Michael, there's one thing I just don't understand about you. If the Bible is the Word of God, how, how come there are so many versions of it? You know, how can you put your faith into something like that? Because if it is the Word of God, then why are there so many different versions? Have you ever thought of that? We always say, well, the Bible's the Word of God then how come there's so many different translations of it? Well, let me explain that very simply. That's a, that's a very valid question to ask. And surprisingly, very, very few even evangelical Christians can answer this question. A matter of fact, just yesterday I was having a conversation with a lady, and she asked the question, um, what's the biggest difference between the NIV and the ESV? Is there a major difference here I should be aware of? Yeah, there is. So let me explain what these are. You see, the NIV and the NLT, two, number one and number two in the bestsellers list, are both written in a style that basically is called thought-for-thought thought style. In other words, the scholars were looking at sections of the text, and they tried to think of not, not transcribing it word by word, but by the thought. Um, see, many of you have probably, I bet, raise your hands if you've, uh, if you've uh, taken a foreign language. Okay, most of you have. And you know you, there's two different ways you can translate something. If you hear a sentence, you can just formulate it in your own words, what the person is trying to say, and just put it in, in your own words like that. That's like a thought for thought. You're taking his thought, translating it into your thought like that. That's how it's going. You're just trying to make his thought, the original thought, 
understandable to the person. The second way of doing it would be to translate it literally word by word. Well, you see, one is going to be extremely accurate if you're going by word by word. The other one is more by thought. So you add things inside of um, the text that might not necessarily the same words be used in the text as what you're using if you're using a thought for thought. Um, and what they did, I'm not, please understand, I'm not bashing the NIV or the NLT. I'm just explaining to you how they were put together. I have an NIV sitting on my office desk by my computer right now. I use it frequently. But um, it does have limitations. And one of the limitations is that it is a thought for thought. I have actually um, heard sermons, I hate to say this, but I've heard sermons where a pastor is preaching off this one verse. His whole, whole sermon is on this verse. And in this verse, he's using the NIV. In this verse, he's using the word atonement or something like that. Yet the actual word atonement does not appear in the ancient text. I'm sitting here with a Greek New Testament and it's not in there. It's a different words like propitiation, which that's not the same thing. So uh, now what the pastor said was totally accurate. Everything he said about like on atonement was totally correct. The only problem is the verse he was using in the original Greek does not have that word in it. <laughs> it was a different word. So you see, you can have some problems, but um, these scholars, when they did like the NIV, they tried to, to get in a mindset. For instance, if they're gonna translate Mark, um, that day, they're working on Mark. They all came in, and, and there's over 100 scholars from many different denominations that are sitting here working on this, and they're saying, okay, in their minds, they're thinking, okay, I want to think like Mark. Mark wasn't that educated. Um, he would speak um, in a, a less educated way than, say, like Luke or Paul, and they were trying to get in a mindset as they would take the, uh, the Greek language here of the New Testament, the, the really old language, and they tried to put the Instead of going word by word, they just took, what's he saying? What's God really trying to just sell, tell us? And then they write it down. By the way, Mark would do it. And that's how these things were done. Um, so what you get then is some paraphrasing in the text. Now, if you have an NIV study Bible, many times it will tell you in the study notes below when something is being paraphrased. Um, but you don't always know if you're just reading the Bible, reading an NIV Bible. One other thing I should just mention about these is the NIV was written on an eighth grade reading level, and the NLT is simpler. It's written on a sixth grade reading level. So trying to make it so the, the audience uh, would be able to understand it, that's what they were doing. But that's how those two were put together. Now, the opposite side of that is like the King James, the New King James, the English Standard, and one I have not mentioned really yet, the New American Standard Version. Um, commonly called the NS, uh, NASB, these were made totally different. The translators here, what they did is they took every available ancient manuscript they could get hold of in the Hebrew, the Chaldean, and the Greek, and they placed them all out as they are looking at these things, and they translated literally word by word, going each individual word, trying to figure out the most accurate word in English to fit what that's, that word would be in its ancient day. And this, this is called a word-for-word -word rendition. And they're slightly different. They're not all exactly the same. For instance, the King James Version was written in 1611 and has this old Shakespearean style of, of um, reading to it. And it's, it's beautiful. It's gorgeous. That's what I learned to read because when I was a kid, there weren't a lot of these translations around the church I went to. It was, we only used the King James. I went through Awanas. 
And when I was a kid, and Awanas back then um, only used the King James, so I memorized all these Bible verses, hundreds of Bible verses as a kid in King James. The problem was sometimes I had no idea what these words were. I was memorizing, but I memorized them. And even to this day, if I quote something, um, if I quote a, a verse, usually it's out of the King James because that's the way I memorized it as a kid. Um, but the King James is written on a collegiate reading level. And that's one of the, the things about it that make it a little different. It's collegiate. I mean, it's, it's like really advanced Shakespearean style of language. The new King James was written to try to stay as true to the old King James as possible, but to just make it a more updated English language. Now, they too went back to ancient manuscripts and then went word by word trying to figure it out, but they really used the old King James Version, uh, the 1611 Version. They used that primarily as their basis. They, in my opinion, they relied a little bit too heavily on that and not on the ancient manuscripts themselves. Even so, the New King James is an excellent translation. Um, I highly recommend it if you're looking for a new translation. It's a very good one. And it is written on a ninth grade reading level, so it's not so bad to use. I mean, most all of you in here in high school should be able to pick that thing up and easily read it. Then you come to the one I didn't mention too much before. That's the New American Standard um, Bible, and it is a word for word, um, but it is written um, so word for word they even did not uh, arrange the sentences to make them into the English form, like predicates and stuff are, are sort of odd in there. In other words, it's like Yoda speaking the Bible. Um, it's like if the character, Star Wars character Yoda was, was reading his Bible, you would sound like that because it's got the, the phrasing is a little odd. Because of that alone, it is put on a collegiate reading level. I seldom use it with like high school. I never use it with middle school um, when I'm speaking to groups, but I do use it sometimes with adults because it's a collegiate reading level. And it is often considered the, one of the absolute most accurate translations ever made. So then there's the last one I was just going to mention here, and that's the English Standard. The one is the fifth bestseller right now. And they, too, tried to stay as true as possible to the ancient text, going word by word. But instead of doing it like the New American Standard, they put it more into the English format of how sentences are formed. Thus, it is, and they also changed some of the really big words into more simpler words. It's written on an eighth grade reading level. But now we are faced with a very important question. Are these word-for-word -word translations accurate? I mean, that is a very valid question, and that's one we have to look at. And this is where I start getting excited, because this is, this is getting into archaeology and stuff, and I love this. Did you know that the Bible is the most accurate book in the world? It's true. The most accurate book. If you go to any secular university, go to the head of the literature department, ask what is the most accurate book in existence, they will always tell you, 99.9% .9 of the time, they're going to tell you the Bible. They might not believe in what the Bible says or anything, but they will say, yeah, it's the most accurate book. What is that? How can they say something like that? It's because, did you know that for like the New Testament alone, there's almost 25,000 ancient manuscripts and fragments of old manuscripts existing? Almost 25,000. And some of these date back to the time period of when these apostles were actually still living and writing this stuff. There's no gap of hundreds or thousands of years between when it was written to the earliest copy we have. Now, the second most accurate book, if you ask that question, will be Homer's Iliad. I believe there's like 635 ancient copies. 600.
135 compared to almost 25,000. You see a difference here. Also, the oldest copy that we have of Homer's Iliad was written uh, it, during the Middle Ages, well over a thousand, maybe 1300 or 14, 1500 years after the death of Homer. So we're talking a long span of time from when he finished writing to the oldest copy we have. Um, so how accurate is that? We don't know. But the Bible is the most accurate, more accurate than anything else. And when people say, well, how can you prove that? Well, let me show you something. As I pull this out of my cabinet, this is my, one of my favorite uh, possessions. My wife bought me this for Christmas last year. It's not original. This is a museum copy. But this is called the P52 manuscript. Do you see this? It's a piece of papyrus. And it's written on both sides. So this is not a scroll. This is a codex. It's a book. And it's amazing because it's the oldest parchment ever found to date of the New Testament. You can Google P52. If you Google P51, you're going to hit the Mustang fighter from World War II. P52, you're going to hit this manuscript. And it is a fragment of the Gospel of John. You can actually see. Can you see that? You can actually see Greek lettering right on here. And it's written on both sides. Yet, if you look at this and you start reading, if you can read Greek, it's, it's recording on one side, on the side you're looking at right here. This is John chapter 18, verses 31 through 33. If you turn it over, it's the same chapter 18, but verses 37 and 38. Now, most scholars date this fragment around 100 to 150 A.D. John was probably still alive at the time of this. Now, we don't have any idea if John actually penned this, though it is possible. Um, many of these scriptures, uh, these, uh, these books, these gospels were copied over and over and over um, to get into uh, different churches. Um, I mean, it, it is possible because John was living at the time this thing was actually made. That's why I love this one so much. And a more conservative date just came out, I was reading a couple of weeks ago, um, that there are some experts now believing that this dates back to about one, or I'm sorry, about 90 AD to 120 AD. So definitely in the lifetime of John. And what is also strikingly amazing is if you read the Greek on this thing, it fits very well with what the New American Standard Bible has. It's basically the same thing. This and other fragments continue to provide evidence that these word-for-word -word translations that we have today are accurate. It's amazing how accurate this is. And by the way, these, uh, these ancient manuscripts that we have, the 25,000 almost uh, of New Testament manuscripts, do you know they've compared variances in these things and they find it's only like a half a percent. Homer's Iliad, there's over 5% variance with the oldest copy we have to the, uh, our modern one that we have today. So there's, there's some really serious problems with that. But anyway, the greatest support, though, for the Word of God, that it has not changed, particularly the Old Testament, is to just take a look at the Dead Sea Scrolls. I'm going to read a quote from Biblical Archaeology Society about these. Quote, the Dead Sea Scrolls have been called the greatest manuscript find of all time. Discovered between 1947 and 1956, the Dead Sea Scrolls comprise some 800 documents, but in many tens of thousands of fragments. The scrolls date from around 250 B.C., to 68 AD, they were written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. They contain biblical works and apocryphal works, prayers and legal texts, and sectarian documents, unquote. Yet, if you sit and you examine these 
these uh, scrolls. And they've take, made tours and museums and stuff. Like there's an Isaiah scroll that's like 40 feet long. Um, these scrolls are absolutely amazing in their accuracy when you compare it with a word-for-word translation like the New American Standard Bible. It's basically the exact same thing. There's less than a 5%, I'm sorry, a 0.5% variance. 0.5%. Wow, that is really er uh, accurate. And by the way, you might be saying, well, even so, it's not perfect. It's not, you know, it's a 0.5. That's a half a percent. But that half a percent is in the spelling of names and places, not anything in the doctrines. No, it's extremely accurate. Now, there's another one I can show you. And I've got some pictures here I'm going to illustrate to you. Have you ever heard of the thing called the Silver Scrolls? Now, these are two scrolls found in 1979 by a teen working for Dr. Gabriel uh, Barcaí in Jerusalem. They were digging on the western side of the lower part of the city of David in Jerusalem. This teen was cleaning an ancient uh, Jewish tomb. Um, the tomb is about 2,600 years old. And so it's dating around 650-700 B.C., uh, 650 B.C., 700 B.C., somewhere in there is when they, they believe this tomb was made and the contents of it. But anyway, this boy found, I believe his name was Nathan, he found these two little rolled up scrolls, look like ancient cigarette butts, just two little tiny things. Yet, they are amazing because these scrolls contain words from Scripture written on them. Words actually found in the Torah. And it's, it's an amazing discovery when they found these things back in 79. And the way they found it was fascinating. The boy um, was inside this tomb, little sealed tomb, and he had a hammer. And he was ordered to clean this tomb out. Why he needed a hammer escapes me, but he is a 13-year-old. Anyway, he starts banging on the floor, and the floor gave way. He fell down into a chamber with uh, like 95 skeletons and all sorts of other things. It was a, a family tomb. And he found, eventually he found these two little scrolls. They were pieces of silver beaten like to the thinness of aluminum foil and then inscribed on there. And this is what, was in, is, this is what is inscribed on these scrolls. Quote, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Unquote. Sound familiar? It's the exact same wording we have in our word-for-word -word translation that is often called the priestly prayer or the priestly blessing. It's exactly the same. There is no variance in this. It is the same thing. And, I mean, this is one of the most amazing discoveries ever. And it shows that even Holy Scripture has not changed in, in centuries, 2,600 years, this is absolutely amazing. And the Dead Sea Scrolls, written 250 years, some of them like an Isaiah scroll, 200 years before Christ was even born, yet it has the full description of Christ's crucifixion in here. Isaiah being given a gift by God of, of being able to see and prophesize the, the crucifixion and the suffering Messiah. And then this happens, it's, it's written 250 years before Christ. And it happened perfectly. I, I hate when people come up to me and they say, well, the reason Isaiah has Isaiah 53 is so accurate it was written after the time of Christ. No, the Dead Sea Scrolls prove it was written 250 years before. 
it's, it's amazing. Now, since the Word of God on these scrolls is exactly what we have in our word-for-word text, folks, listen, you can trust that God's Word today is the same. It has remained unchanged throughout time. Do you get that? Now, really, this should not surprise a true Christian who holds that the Word of God is inspired and given to us by God Himself uh, those several, uh, uh, through several authors whom the Holy Spirit inspired. Look at what God told us concerning His Word back in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Even, that's Old Testament. How about New Testament? 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Or let's take it from Jesus, who is God himself. Look what he says in Matthew 24, verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So in today's society, promoting political, political correctness, some have declared that the word of God has lost its meaning. They have said that the Word of God no longer should govern or direct our lives. We can do that ourselves. We're modern man, after all. This statement reeks with human pride. And pride is a sin. So where does a statement like this come from? It comes from the master of all lies. It's from Satan himself. People who are going around saying, our Bible cannot be trusted. You can't trust the Word of God. Was that not Satan's argument in the garden? Did not Satan go up to Eve and say, God did not say? Mm -hmm. And you know, this should not come as a surprise how our culture today is in a mass flock running to Satan's lie. I mean, people just want to believe that so badly. Give us a reason not to trust the Bible, not to trust in God. Well, this shouldn't come as a surprise to us whatsoever. No. God told us in the last days of the last days, many people would no longer seek Him or believe in Him or trust in Him. Look what, look what Paul wrote Timothy. Just before his death, Paul wrote this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1. Uh, and starting there, I just want to read this phenomenal passage here because this just sounds like it. I mean, it was written over 2,000 years ago, yet it sounds like it was just written today. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Mm -hmm. For people will be lovers of self, <laughs> lovers of money, oh yeah, proud, mm -hmm. arrogant, oh yeah, abusive, oh yes, disobedient to their parents, mm -hmm. ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, oh yes. Brutal, not loving, good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Now, I love how he ends this at the end of verse 5. Avoid such people. I swear, <laughs> this was written... It really was written over 2,000 years ago, but it sounds like it was on the news last night. I'll tell you too, what scares me even more is that some claiming to be Christians will get caught up in this lie and they'll be taken captive and turned from trusting God's Word. 
Oh yes, it'll happen. It does happen. Paul wrote a letter to the Colossian church. He wrote this to Christians. This, don't lose sight of this. This was written to Christians. Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. You know what this is saying? Yes. You're right. Christians can, so-called Christians can be taken captive. Let's close. Father, we thank you for this time we've had here, and I just ask that you just help everybody who's listening to this to realize that your word is real, that it is accurate. You said you would preserve it, and Lord, you have. Archaeology shows that it has. There are so many things more I could show if I had time, but we're just not pressed uh, with the ability in our short limit of time here to get into these things. But Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit will continue to, to work upon each person who's in here and help them to know the truth. May your Spirit continue to teach us throughout the day and through the evening. And when we go to bed tonight, Lord, Holy Spirit, please bring it up to our minds and let us meditate upon this when we sleep. And as we go to sleep, in Jesus' name, amen.